So turn first, let's read our text this morning, which is Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. We will spend a couple of weeks on this text. Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. This is the Word of God, and it is always forever true. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. This is the word of the Lord. And you say, thanks be to God. Another thing, when we pray, um, when the one leading says amen, we should all uh, say amen also. Amen? Amen. Now, we come this morning to one of the more difficult texts in the book of Galatians. You know that there are parts of the Bible that are easy, parts that are difficult. And this is a difficult section in Galatians. In fact, this is a section that I had been dreading for a number of months coming to. I didn't really want to get here. This discussion of Sarah and Hagar and their children did not come easily to me when I would just read through the book of Galatians. It wasn't a chapter that I found myself wanting to stop and study. And this is often true with Scripture. We grow lazy and we want God's truth to come to us with no effort on our part. Sort of like everything on television, no effort required. It is true that when I get done an elders meeting, the thing I want more than anything else is television. And the reason is that it's brain dead, and I've had just about enough of brain living for the evening. Another thing I really don't want when I get done with an elders meeting is I don't want my wife to lie down on the bed next to me the next morning and say, so, what happened at the elders meeting last night? <laughs> well, why? Well, because in elders meetings, you sense the weight spiritually of what's going on. You realize the responsibilities you're bearing um, and everything at it is heavy. You know, at elders meetings, there are a lot of jokes because you need jokes to get through the evening. Um, now, I don't mean by that that everything's sad. It's not. It's joyful. But even the joy is heavy in an elders meeting. And so you go home and you want what? Something that's completely brainless. What's completely brainless? Well, the things that we give many hours a day to, and that's television. 
So here's how we come to Scripture. Now ask yourself if this isn't true. Ask yourself if this isn't true about your expectations of coming into church on Sunday morning. Ask yourself whether I don't speak for you as you look to the Holy Spirit holding a Word of God in your hands. Now picture this. You've got the Bible open. You've got it open, say, to Galatians 4. This bit about allegory and Hagar and Sarah and Mount Sinai, right? You're reading this and you look up at God and what? You're the product of television. You're the product of, of television's culture, right? Okay? So you look up to the Holy Spirit who inspired Scripture and here's what you say, alright? You know, they can make things easy to understand on television. Why can't you do it? I bring myself, as if this is self-righteousness, I bring myself, I bring my children to church each week. And I have to warn you, they compare you to television. That's the world they live in, you know, as if that's saying something. And the comparison, I, I, I travel to say this, but the comparison does not go well with you. When they watch TV, they understand the plot, but they don't get you. Why can't they understand the plot of Galatians 4 as easily as L.A. Law? Or whatever it is today. You know, the part where you, for instance, write about Sarah and Hagar. I don't want to be disrespectful, but it kind of looks like you did not do your homework. I mean, did you write an outline first? Did you study your target audience, Holy Spirit? Do you care about your target audience? I've got to tell you, I'm unimpressed. If the Bible's so important, it should be written in a way to make it easy to understand without spending an hour on it. Twenty minutes, that's people's time frame. You have twenty minutes. And face it, Holy Spirit, if you can't get the job done in 20 minutes, then you won't get it done if you have an hour. That's their attention. Well, okay, fine. Yeah, basketball games are different. Football games are different. Soccer games are different. I admit that their attention spans a little. And if they're reading Les Mis, you know, or watching it, that's different. Computer games are different. Even dinner is different. But there they're getting something to eat, aren't they? But anyhow, let's not change the subject. Do you realize that you are losing the younger generation. As a matter of fact, you've lost me. What's this stuff about Melchizedek anyway? Or Sarah and Hagar. They're Old Testament and we're New Testament. We're supposed to press ahead forgetting what is behind. Now, listen, people. I wrote that. It's all right here. If you want a copy, I'll give it to you. And I wrote that as a combination of everything I've heard through the years. And I, 
and I could respond to it for seven straight hours and keep you transfixed. All right? Why? Because this is the way you think. You. Not somebody else next to you. This is the way you think. You are not patient. You do not think that this place is a place that you should apply the principle that applies in every other part of our lives. And what is the principle? The principle is that the early bird gets the worm. That the person that sweats, I mean, think about it. Whoever thought that baling hay was going to be easy? Baling hay is the pits, and usually it's 95% humidity when you're baling, right? If you've ever bailed, it wears out your blue jeans at the knee unless you have a kick baler, right? All right? Baling hay is hard. What about giving birth to a child? Is this easy? Do you shake your fist in God's face and say, if something's worth doing, it should be easy. What about football? As I said to my son a number of years ago when he was complaining about having to rewrite a paper for the fifth time on something as meaningless as Arianism. And he's crying. And I said to him, hey, if you were on the football field practicing with Nathan Potsikoff at Bloomington South High School, and you like had to hit the dummy like for the 50th time, would you go to the coach and cry because it hurt? No, we wouldn't do that, would we? What about at work? It's scary climbing the ladder onto the roof, right? But without you climbing the ladder up to the roof, the roof won't get re-roofed, will it? So what do you do? Cry to your boss? And when it comes time for your son to begin to earn a living for his family, have you taught him to cry to his boss? No. You see, the principle is every other area of life, we understand that sweat and blood is necessary. You understand? But when it comes to the Word of God and the church, it's market-driven. It's supposed to be easy and instantaneous and without labor. And what is this from? Well, I could... I, could, I have some theories about what it's from. One, I think that it's sort of the romantic stupidity that we've inherited from our culture, where we think that the more important things are, the, le- the, the less they should be a result of work, and the more they should be a result of just feelings that overtake you. And this is one of the great uh, tragedies of marriage today, is that we think, you know, people come in, they've been married 25 years, and they say to you, I don't love my wife anymore. And you go, duh. You know, the whole point of plighting your truth, promising faithfulness, taking vows is that you won't love your wife anymore. That is, if you think love is romance that washes over you like a wave and emotes and like comes out with feelings and like, you know, wants you, makes you want to get up in the morning and give her a back rub. I mean, this just doesn't happen in marriage, right? The point of plighting your truth, pledging your faithfulness, taking vows is that marriage is hard work. And yet our culture feeds this lie to us that every day in every way we just wake up bubbling. And that's a good marriage. Bad marriage is people get up and maybe don't like the smell of each other's breath, but we love the smell of each other's breath in our home. I mean, we're just a gaga over each other. And so no wonder in America marriages are completely destroyed. And what you say to somebody that comes in and says, I don't love my wife anymore, is say, that's because you're not working to love her. Love is work. It's not an emotion. 
So if you don't love your wife anymore, that's because you don't love your wife anymore. <laughs> you know? Okay, now bring it into Scripture. Bring it to the Word of God. We come to the Word of God and we think that's the one place that we won't have to have like an index and a glossary and a dictionary and, and like, you know, ancillary helps and a professor up front lecturing to us and explaining who Poe was, you know, and who he is and, and what the genre of like scary fiction is. Right? With Scripture, we should just come, and our children should come, and they should be as slothful as they are when they cut the grass, slow listening to their Walkman while they cut it. All right. (laughs) Okay? And they should just, like, kind of get it, you know? Get it! After all, isn't this important? Shouldn't we make it easy for our children and for ourselves, you know? And what do our children see? Our children see us completely lazy when we come to church. And so, guess what? Our children are as lazy as we are. <laughs> okay. Now, you want me to back off, right? I'm looking for one head shaking. One. Well, I didn't get it this morning. I'm not going to back off. You know why? Because this is one of the major problems with churches in America today. In Africa, they think that following God should be, will be, hard work. In Africa, it's their whole lives. In Africa, I have been warned both times I've gone and am going to preach that I better not preach less than 45 minutes because people will be angry with me. Okay? In America, it's the opposite. Why? It's because we're a bunch of, <laughs> well, what would, what would you call it in the locker room? A bunch of wusses, a bunch of wimps, a bunch of sissies, a bunch of pansies. You know? What we want is our manhood on a screen, people that are paid millions of dollars. But there's no place for manhood in the church. You say, well, what about the women? I say, look, you women know what I'm talking about. Blood, sweat, and tears. If you want, I'll say it. Giving birth is manly. Okay? That's why men have to go to war. (laughs) Because why should the woman have to do both? I mean, it's only a sophisticated culture that has PhDs could not know that. All right? So, let me read a text. And here's the text. It's from Hebrews 5. And the text says this. The Apostle Paul has the same problem with his congregation. He's been teaching. He's been teaching on the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. It was the most difficult doctrinal thing. That's why we fight over baptism. All right? It's very difficult. And he goes off on this thing about a guy named what? Melchizedek. Now, I know. You go to bed at night thinking about Melchizedek, right? And if I were to start teaching on Melchizedek, it would just perk your interest right up, right? No, Melchizedek is pretty exotic. And so the Apostle Paul is going off on Melchizedek, and he looks up at his audience, his target audience that he knows, and he sees them yawning and sleeping. And so he stops and he says, Hebrews 5, verse 11, concerning Melchizedek, We have much to say. Now, you know Paul. He did have a lot to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. 
For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Is this what I've been saying? Okay. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. Now, does that insult you? If I say to you as a congregation that we're a bunch of children, we're not men, does that insult you? Do you resemble that implication? All right, do you? Well, here's what the apostle, well, whoever wrote Hebrews, he says this, but solid food is for the mature. And you say, well, you know, I can go through life without having solid food. I can go through life without being mature. It's no big deal. You know, I'm content to live on milk. <laughs> come on now, think about that. I'm content to milk. Now, come on, think about yourself with honesty and transparency and authenticity. <laughs> okay? And ask yourself this. What's the modern equivalent of saying that in the church and looking very pious as you say it? I'm content to live on milk. Are you ready? I'm going to give it to you. We always use God's Word to oppose God. You know that, don't you? Oh, Lord, this money is Corbin. You know, it's devoted to the temple. And I can't use it. I can't use it to help my old parents. And Jesus says what? He says, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your traditions. All right? We always use the word of God to oppose God at the point where we want to escape his, his command. Okay, so I'm content to live on milk, but we don't say that, do we? Because that would be too glaring. You know, it would be too obvious. So what do we say? What we say is, I... Are you ready? I... Anybody know the second word? I have... I have determined to know what? Nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Okay? Now, you're scandalized that I would use that in that way. Hey, that's what we do. You're the one that does it. You use that text, which is to the glory of Jesus Christ, to hide your rebellion against God. And you use the concept of knowing nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified as your way of refusing to learn anything about Melchizedek or Hagar or Sarah. And then you have the audacity to come to me and demand that I follow you in your rebellion against God. Do you understand? Am I being very clear? Okay. You imagine how often children come to parents and and explain to parents that the reason they disobeyed is because they were obeying. I mean, it's one of the oldest tricks in the book, right after the trick of, of pitting your father against your mother. Asking your dad something, well, more typically, well, I don't know, it depends on your marriage, you know, which one you go to first. <laughs> I have determined to do nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And listen to what Hebrews says. Solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, we say, oh, come on, practice. That's for football. And that's what matters. But it says here, solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, 
Okay? This is the same Holy Spirit who wrote that as said, I have determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This same Christ, through His Spirit, says this, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ. Do you understand? It's like, of course, when somebody comes into your home, you say hello and welcome. But if all you ever say the whole time they're sitting at your dinner table is hello and welcome, you know, they're going to think something's wrong with you. And if it doesn't get to meet pretty soon, the men will not be happy. Okay? We all understand this. But when it comes to faith, we have whole churches, whole denominations, whole mega churches whose principle. <laughs> you know, not a blind failing, whose principle is to keep people constantly at the first things that we are directly commanded in this chapter in Hebrews to leave behind. Do you understand this? Okay. It says, solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from good works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, there's no question that our children need to be introduced to the gospel. This is not saying that from the time our children uh, come out of the womb, that we can leave behind the elementary things of the gospel. Our children must be born again. Our children must hear the elementary things of the gospel. But let me tell you, if a child of the covenant, if a child of the new Jerusalem, if a child of the mother, the church, the bride of Christ reaches the age of 18 and leaves our home without having a character and a mind and an understanding and a vocabulary that demonstrate that that child has been brought to maturity by the church and their family. This is a failing of the church and the family. Now, let me ask you, what is at stake What are we willing to do to bring one another and our children to maturity? Now, I'm not asking you what we're willing to do to bring IU to Jesus Christ. I'm not, at this point, asking what we're going to do to evangelize the world. Because you understand that the Great Commission tells us that we are to go into all the world preaching the gospel and that we are to make disciples of all men. And do you think a disciple is someone who thinks he has a principle to stay on milk his whole life? That is absolutely not a disciple. You look at how Jesus dealt with his disciples. You look at the constant rebukes he gave them because of what? I mean, you should immediately know the thing more than any other thing that Jesus rebuked his disciples about. What is it? Well, both, yes. A lack of faith, a lack of understanding. They go together. Yeah, yeah. And you look at how rigorous and vigorous was his discipling of his disciples. I mean, it started with, uh, you know, leave the boat, leave your income-producing behavior, <laughs> leave your father, right? Leave your tax collector table, Matthew. That was the very beginning. And when the guy said, oh, you know, really, I, 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 give me time to, what did Jesus say? Let the dead bury the dead. 
Okay? And this was discipleship. So, if you today say that the only purpose of the church is to do evangelism, and by evangelism you mean the simple part of the gospel that is referred to here as the part of the gospel that we should be leaving behind as we press on to eat meat and to become teachers and to become mature and to become able to discern between good and evil, then you're really, again, using the word of Christ, using the words of the Holy Spirit to oppose the Holy Spirit. Do you understand that? What does the Bible say? The Bible says this. Be diligent, 2 Timothy 2.15, to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. One of the real problems with the church today is that... um, the expectation is that I'll stay up here behind this podium and that I won't come down and get in your face. Um, and at this point, uh, I want to talk to those of you that have children. You know how I know that verse that I just read, Second Timothy? You know how I know that verse? Because when I was in high school, my father bought me a Schofield reference King James Version And he wrote that verse in his own hand in the front page and he handed it to me. There were no words. Those were the words. Now, what do you think I learned about that as a son? And you know that I saw my father suffer because he would not give in to the church's sins. I saw my father standing up nationally through the pages of magazine rebuking people like Bill Gothard. And Bill Gothard needed to be rebuked. In fact, it was the board members that Gothard had who came to my father and asked my father to rebuke because he would not submit to their board. Okay? Now, do you think that this should not be spoken of? Do you think that Bill Gothard should have a reputation that's more pristine than the Apostle Peter who was publicly rebuked by Paul in front of the church That's what my father-in-law thought, that my father should have just kept it silent and not gone public with it and handled it all in secret. Thank God that Paul didn't do that with Peter, because we wouldn't have it in Galatians. We wouldn't have a precedent for seeing how the church is supposed to handle error on the part of its leaders. I grew up seeing this. I grew up seeing my father sweating and bleeding for the sake of the gospel. And you say, well, not the gospel. Other things. No, it is the gospel that causes us to disciple men. That is the gospel. It's not the gospel where the blood of Christ and then everything else is an add-on that you can take if you want it. This is the gospel. Making disciples of all men. What? What comes next? Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. This is evangelism. It's not evangelism to get people to come forward and then to move on to the next city. Is that ever what the Apostle Paul did? You say, yeah, he was moving to the next city constantly. I say, yeah, read the letters about what he says he did as long as he was able to stay there. Day and night with tears warning them. Does that sound like an evangelistic crusade at New York City? You know? Day and night with tears, never holding back anything God said to say to them. You see, what I am trying to get through your head is that Christianity is death. 
Don't you know this is what Jesus said when people would come to him, when he was doing his, uh, um, what, what's it called, um, his seeker-sensitive evangelism? Here's how he did it. He said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. When Jesus did his, his uh, audience uh, studies and stuff, it caused him to say to them, if any man would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Because if a man wants to save his life, he'll lose it. But if a man will lose his life for my sake, he'll find it. His audience probes and marketing analysis caused him to say to the people that he was evangelizing, all right, do not fear those who can kill only the body, but rather fear those, the one who can throw your soul into hell. He was really in tune with his market, wasn't he? And I'm being sarcastic. Now, why am I on this rant? I'm on the rant because I know you don't want to study about Hagar and Sarah. <laughs> and I'm trying to get you to see this is not a small thing. If Paul wants you to learn what the meaning of an allegory is, if Paul wants you to understand that there's a meaning behind the competition of these two women who slept with one man, Abraham, and between their children, then if he wants you to hear about that, then it must be important. I want you to go to the Bible and to assume that the Bible has application to your lives and the lives of the bored and jaded children who are sitting next to you that you allow to watch television. And that's why they're bored and jaded. I want you to bring into your home and to your children, I want us to have in this church a, a, uh, some indication that we are living in this life only for the life to come. Do you understand that? I want you to have a doctrine of the fear of God. I don't want you to come to church and expect to be massaged and to have your ears scratched. I want you to think that you got robbed if that happens. I mean, every time I open the Bible and read it, what do I think? I think, ugh. <laughs> you know, I always think, ugh. You know, like somebody's just punched me in the solar plexus and I can't get a breath of air. Why? Because my word, says God, is like a rock. It's like a fire. It's never said to be a feather. It's said to taste sweet like honey. It's said that people want to eat it. But when the Bible takes me and punches me in the solar plexus, it does make me want to eat it. Now, I admit, I have trouble having devotions. Don't think every morning I get up and go, yippee, I can have devotions. <laughs> But every time that Satan has, is defeated and that word opens and I begin to read it, my heart beats. You know? You understand what I'm saying? It's hard to do it. And then the minute you do it, you think this is the most wonderful thing in the world. And you're thinking, okay, he's out of time and he hasn't gotten to Hagar and Sarah. Well, I have gotten to Hagar and Sarah if I have gotten you to think that this is important. That you need to have your week ordered in such a way that when you come into the New Jerusalem, the mother of believers, which is what our text calls this, when you come to the proclamation of God's Word, that you don't come with laziness and slothfulness. You know, I'm looking at you guys. You do karate, right? 
shouldn't you have at least as much discipline and commitment to this as you do to karate? You understand? What about you that do cross-country? Those of you who work at computers, why do they have hackers' conventions, uh, the principal talks after midnight? <laughs> you know? McHack, right. Why? Why after midnight? Well, because coders work through the night. Do you understand that? Because they know it takes that kind of work to produce code that isn't going to drive people to distraction when it's downloaded to the public. Okay. You have to come to church and you have to have your children come to church fearing God and knowing that God is a God who does not find fault with those who humble themselves and come to Him ah, with their mouth open, expecting that they're going to be given good food. That's how your children should come to this worship service. That's how you should come. And if you don't come, and if your children don't come like that, that is a matter between you and God, and it's a matter of rebellion. And if you look at other churches where they can have their mouth shut and be sleeping and feel like they have benefited from that hour, and you expect anything here like that, I tell you, it's different religions. I have nothing to do with that. If that's your God, go and you'll burn in hell. Do you understand that? Because that is a false gospel. The Bible does not give us a God who is content to have civic American religion. It does not give us a God who is content for his people to say that they have a principle of drinking milk. It does not give us a God who is content for us to look at the people around us and engage where we are vis-a-vis -vis the Holy Spirit by where people around us are. Or where Christianity today is. Or Wheaton. Or Billy Graham. My wife's face is very tense right now, so I better lighten up. Um, if the Apostle Paul tells us about Hagar and Sarah, it's because Hagar and Sarah are critically important for us. And we're not going to learn about Hagar and Sarah by being lazy, and our children aren't going to learn by being lazy. You say, well, Jesus taught in ways that people understand. He told stories. I say, well, what do you think Hagar and Sarah is? It's a story. And stories take hard work to understand. So if you want a story from this morning's sermon, here it is. Nathan Potsikoff, and I use his name because he's a neighbor of ours. He used to be in our church, and he did well on South's football team. Nathan Potsikoff goes to football practice, and he hits the dummies, and it hurts. And everybody, everybody, everybody thinks that's good. 
his coach, his parents, the people who watch him at the football games, the people who write the columns and the sports pages, the recruiters from Princeton or wherever he ended up going, everybody thinks that's good. So now when you come to church, you need to be prepared to hit, and it's, what, they're not called dummies, what are they called? They're blocking machines, or what are they called? Huh? The sleds. Okay, thank you, David. <laughs> when we come to church, we should have an expectation that it is to sweat and to bleed. And that as we diligently seek him, that he will reveal himself to us. Now, if you know the Bible, you know I just quoted scripture. That he is a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. Now, mind you, I am not making a case that salvation is by works or sanctification is by works. I'm not robbing you of Galatians. I do not believe that God rewards good works with salvation and sanctification, but I do know that God uses work. And every time I come to preaching to you, I am so grateful. For among others, Timothy George and Martin Luther and John Calvin because of the hard work they have done in studying Scripture. And the problem for pastors who read Luther and Calvin is that they don't ever want to preach. They just want to read Calvin and Luther on the text because they're so good. And so I trust this morning that you will recommit yourselves as an act of obedience to Hebrews and to Second Timothy to diligently studying the Word of God. To coming here in the morning, not tired because you think Sunday's the day, it doesn't matter what your condition is physically and mentally. All right? To coming here with a Bible. Yes, there is one up on the wall, but you should have a Bible. To having a heart that's soft, not proud, not, not angry at your husband or wife. That doesn't help, or your roommate. All right? Having everything ready so that when the mother of believers, which is the church, when she ministers to you, that you are ready and that your goal is to be able to discern between truth and error. All right? And that you're committed to being a carnivore. All right? A meat eater. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it is sharper than a two-edged sword, that it is able and does pierce down to the innermost part of our being, uh, even to the point of separating bone and marrow. We thank you for the promise of your word, that you have said that your word never goes out and returns void, but that it always produces the fruit that you have determined it will produce. We thank you, Father, that you have given us faithful women and men through the centuries who have loved your word and who have left us a record of their hard work, of their suffering, of their persecution, of their tears as they have followed you. We thank you, Father, that we are privileged to be in that great cloud of witnesses today that 
we see their stories written down in this book and we see the doctrine that they have left for us. And Father, we admit, all of us, me, myself included, that we are lazy and that we do not want to give ourselves to anything but the accumulation of wealth and the comfort and convenience that it produces as we see it. So, Father, we repent because this is proper. And we ask you to give us more energy in seeking the knowledge of God than we do in seeking the knowledge of the life of Hollywood and of the stats of Major League Baseball. We pray, Father, that you will turn our hearts from this world to the world that comes. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.